Hi, I'm Michael Dorinda. And I'm Jake Bennett. And this is episode seven of the North Meet South Web Podcast. All right, welcome back, everybody. Today we are going to be talking about uh, No Man's Sky, which is a game that was just released, I believe, PS4, Xbox, all those good platforms. Uh, we're also going to talk about HTTP2, how that works, uh, a middleware that I wrote to kind of facilitate that in Laravel, my first experience with Mail Thief, and then we're also going to be talking about Majestic Monoliths, uh, kind of versus microservices, but not so much microservices, just our thoughts on Majestic Monoliths. So, no Man's Sky. Michael, what have you heard about this thing? Not a great deal. I, I saw a post sort of hit my Facebook feed timeline. I don't know what it's called now. Uh, the other day where they were basically talking with the developers and the de- saying that the developers don't know how big the game is and because it's a procedurally built world, it's always you know expanding, it's always growing. They don't necessarily know what's in it. Mm-hmm. So the concept is interesting, but I don't, I haven't looked into it. I don't really know anything about it other than that. Yeah, so the, I think the concept is like you have, so like, you know, imagine you're Star Wars-ish. You have a flight thing, spaceship, right? And I think there's some sort of like eight quintillion planets or something like that, which I believe the way that it works, if I was trying to think about it, I've, as I've seen some of the different videos and stuff, there's just all these distant points of light, right? And you can kind of go around to these planets or whatever. And the cool thing is about it, there's like no loading screens either, I'm pretty sure. So you just kind of decide the planet you're ready to go to and then you go to that planet and you kind of like come into the atmosphere and then all of a sudden you're on it and there's really no load screen. It just, it just puts you right into the world. And the world is generated kind of like you said. So think about it like Minecraft. If you've ever played Minecraft, you know how you start a new world and it kind of just generates mm-hmm. the world. I think that's exactly what it's doing with this. Um, but it essentially must store it somewhere on a database uh, because it generates the same world for people that come back to that. Okay. Right. So as you discover a planet, you get to name the planet. You get to name any of the species that you find on the planet, whether that's animals or plants or different things like that. They have, I think, little ports where you can do some trading and things with other players in game. But it seems pretty fun. I mean, like, it's just like a game where you kind of go around and explore. I don't know if there's any necessarily like objectives. Mm -hmm. Or if it's just to kind of play and explore and, you know, survive, I guess. I don't know, Minecraft-ish. I'm not sure. Sure. So it's kind of like a more high-tech, I guess, advanced, futuristic Minecraft sort of MMO type thing. Do you, I guess you interact with other players? Yeah, and this is me talking out of ignorance, mind you. So all the people who have played <laughs> it before are going to be irritated with me trying to explain it this way. But <laughs> I do have one other guy who I work with who's really who's been really, really excited to get this for a long time so you know he pre-bought the game and was standing in line at midnight to get it and i haven't heard from him since pretty much <laughs> so i see his posts on facebook because you can link it with your facebook apparently and okay. uh so i see all the planets he discovers and it's funny because like it was, I, it was inside jokes and it was like you better name this first planet whatever and so he did and so he's it, it's funny just to see the different things he's naming them and and all the stuff he's discovering so yeah it's pretty cool it's pretty cool sure. I might have to do some research after we record and then uh, 
depending on if it tickles my fancy, pick up a copy tomorrow. Yeah, man. I know that you you and your wife kind of do game stuff together, right? Like she's into gaming too? Yeah. I know the last time you get, or the last game she was playing was uh, through the, is it a new Zelda game? Uh, or was it, or no, was it, it a, Lego. Or, no, no, she's, she's been big into Lego. So when, when we took, oh, that's right. I'm sorry. It was Lego Hobbit, wasn't it? Yeah. So when we, when we took a week off for our, uh, our birthdays earlier, uh, back in June, uh, we played through, I think it was the, the Star Wars, the force awakens. And I'm, I'm pretty happy with those, those Lego games to just get from the start of the story to the end of the story and call it done. Because I don't, I don't have the patience to sit there and you know break all of the crates and catch all of the you know yeah, get all yeah, the coins yeah. and all that sort of stuff. But she's pretty, I don't know what the word is. I guess tenacious about that. And she will every single Lego game we have, she has completed one hundred percent. Wow, that's insane. Yeah, that's pretty impressive. So that's good for yeah, her. It's definitely her her sort of wheelhouse to sit there and you know repetitive task kind of thing. So I don't think No Man's Sky would be for her because mm. I don't think she could ever discover the whole yeah. thing. She would be, yeah, yeah. You would never see her again. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm not gonna incriminate myself <laughs> because sometimes she listens to this podcast. <laughs> uh, all right, we'll just leave it there. We'll just leave it there. <laughs> what? Just, just quickly, interesting, interesting fact about No Man's Sky. We we did the math uh, and the number of planets is is the 64-bit counter so oh seriously yeah so that that's the limitation is just 64-bit number so two to the ah, 64 is 18 quintillion whatever it was quintillion? whatever that big number yeah, was that sure. started with 18 okay yeah all right cool that's interesting i'm yeah. sure that's got significance to it but just just sprinkling cool. some facts yeah yeah absolutely <laughs> or it could be i could just be totally pulling that out of my um out of my backside it may may not be real yeah yeah, no, that sounds right. Eighteen quintillion sounds exactly right. Um, so that's uh, yeah. That, anyway, it looks interesting. I, I would love to play it at some point. I doubt I'll ever have time, but you never know. <laughs> so uh, let's go ahead and we'll move on a little bit. Um, ben Ramsey uh, was at Laracon this year, and he gave a talk about the HTTP spec and kind of the history of how it's moved from one dot or you know even pre- previous to that, if there was such a thing to HTTP2, which is being adopted by more and more um, browser makers to be able to handle a lot of those uh, new specifications. And so one of the things that HTTP2 allows for is what's called server push. And so what that allows uh, a browser to do is one of the issues we've had in the past is you have all these connections that are being made to the server. And I am very, I will just, for those of you who may be listening who are experts to this, I will claim no expertise. This is just things that I've read. So if I say something incorrect, feel free to correct us and we will put something in the show notes. Um, but the idea of having, you basically incur a small penalty every time you have to make an, a new connection to go get an asset. So, you know, in the past, maybe you'd have at the bottom of your of your webpage, you'd have like 15 calls to different JavaScript libraries or whatever, right? That seems to be pretty common in the past, right? So what we started doing is we started using build tools to concatenate all that JavaScript. So it's a single call, right? So once that handshake is made, whatever, all that stuff is coming over the wire, you don't have to incur any additional penalties for making that request out to the server. Same thing with CSS and whatever, right? So every time you make an additional call, um, 
you have to wait that small period of time. And so what server push allows you to do is on its first request to the server, uh, your server will generate your response and it will start sending content back to the, to the client. And so typically what will happen is it will deliver the HTML, the browser will parse the HTML, and then it will look for the assets that it needs to load in based on what it sees in the HTML. And then it will make those, those requests for the CSS, for the JavaScript, for images, etc. So what server push allows you to do is allows you to, in that first response that you start sending back to the client, include all of the assets that need to be compiled or not compiled, I'm sorry, that's the wrong word, that need to be downloaded for the page. And so you can say, hey, here's my first response. Here's a header that tells you you're definitely going to need this CSS. You're definitely going to need this JavaScript. You're going to need these images. And it can start downloading those immediately before it even has parsed the page. So it said you would say that it allows the server to speculatively start downloading or sending resources to the client. So it can, it can speed up uh, load times on the page. Um, it, it also has some inherent issues that aren't really solved yet uh, as far as browser caching and how it handles that. And the, the answer to that is essentially it doesn't handle that. It doesn't really work super well with browser cache. It doesn't know about it or what assets have been cached already. So there's the possibility of wasting a little bit of bandwidth by starting to deliver assets they may, that they may already have cached. But all in all, being what it is, being kind of like an early spec at Laravel, it was it was discussed, and one of the last screens he showed was setting headers, you know, as a re uh, in, in your response to be able to enable HTTP2 server push from your Laravel app. Uh, so myself and a couple other people, actually, I think there's three packages out there right now, all had the same idea, like, wow, let's just write a little Laravel package for this. And each of us kind of approached it a different way. Tom Schlick, who is uh, a guy who's been a part of the Laravel community for a long time, his solution was to essentially have these global helpers that would allow you to specify a JavaScript asset or a CSS asset or an image asset, and then to call those global helpers, and that would set in a you know, something in the container, the objects that you wanted to push back with your response. So when your response was generated, he has, uh, he would have a middleware that would be listening and would attach those link headers on your response from that global middleware or, or from the, those global helpers that you would call to set those assets, which is good, works great. The only limitation I saw with that was that if you ever changed something on your page, you would have to then modify those calls to that global helper. So if you modified the name of the CSS file or the name of your JavaScript file or included a new one, you wouldn't have those available until you actually specified it or declared it in that global helper. So what mine does is it uses Symfony's DOM crawler to, upon your server rendering the response, this would be what would in the, in the previous Laravel days be called an after middleware. So it happens kind of on the return side. It, it parses your response, looks for any CSS, JavaScript, or image assets, and then will automatically grab the path to those and set them as headers. So I've been, I, I messed with it a little bit. Eric Barnes included it in uh, his Laravel newsletter and is also using it on the new Laravel news, which is pretty cool. Gosh. And then um, I've got a couple comments on it about, uh, about it on Twitter. And one other thing that was really cool is Graham Campbell, who most of us in the Laravel community know and love, <laughs> Uh, contributed to the repository like the second day it was up, which is really cool because he's a pretty awesome developer and it was it was really nice to have him contribute to the project. So yeah, yeah it's been pretty interesting. 
and um, been working working well. I mean, there's certainly room for improvement down the down the line. Michael, you were one, one the one that kind of enlightened me as to the fact about you know the cash, and there was a couple different ideas for how that could be handled. Yeah, yeah, the the caching, as you mentioned earlier, is an interesting one because when when the server sends data to the browser, as you said server doesn't know what the browser already has cached because it's just it's just shoving things out there saying here take this and then it's up to the browser to then close that connection or cancel it and say look I've I've got this in my cache don't worry about it so there's there's a few different ways of handling that one of the one of the guys I work with he he's been playing around with http2 in go for a little while now and and he he had basically approached it in the same way that that you had with the middleware and parsing the DOM of of the content that was being sent back in the response and then figuring out which link headers to send in. But it was his idea uh, essentially to set some kind of cookie or session on the client side that the server then has access to. And even that is still a bit hit and miss because you're making the assumption that anyone who doesn't have the cookie hasn't visited the site and anyone that does probably does have it. So it's a bit hit and miss. I'm not, not really sure... And and we didn't really come up with a good solution for it, unless you maybe sprinkle a bit of machine learning in it. I think was something that maybe Graham said in there. So yeah, I think there's probably a little bit more to it than just doing that. And I'm sure I'm sure there was he probably had you know more of a more information around that suggestion. But yeah, it's sort of it's sort of just sitting there. And until we have a better understanding of of what client server interactions are going to be like for http2 and whether or not that part of the spec changes because i think you said you were doing some reading mm-hmm. and there was still some uh you know moving ground on that so correct i believe there is yeah uh might might just be worth letting the the client deal with it in the short term and once we have a better understanding of it tackling it then exactly yeah so it's kind of like one of those things it's like it's out there for anybody to use if you want to i think the penalties you would incur would be pretty small at this point but yeah it's definitely like a work in progress there's there's certainly things that could be added i believe that the spec will likely change to help figure out some of these issues and that's what i was reading is like it'll be it'll more intelligently be able to figure out what's in the browser cache before it starts downloading those assets and yeah so anyway and like you said, which what the thing that's cool is just because you send it in the link headers in that first response does not mean that the browser has to download all of it. It can send a cancel and it'll just stop downloading those immediately. Yeah, which is still which is still a huge improvement over what happens now, I guess. So uh, that's that's you know it steps in the right direction for sure. Sure, absolutely. Yep. I want to give a shout out to uh, Farik. I can't remember his last name. Do you know who I'm talking about? Yeah, uh, Freik. Freak Vander, is it Vander Herten? Yep, Freak Vander Herten. Yeah. Freak M U R Z E F R E E K M U R Z E on Twitter. Yeah, he of course is like the master of Laravel packages, and so uh, I had developed a PJAX middleware at some point, and then Jeffrey Way did a Laravel po- uh, Laravel uh, screencast on it, and Farik made another middleware, PJAX middleware. It was very similar to mine. We both used Dom Dom crawler to kind of handle it. But his was done with way better testing than mine was. So I uh, sort of used some of his tests as starting points for my HTTP2 middleware. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, big shout out to him. He's got some seriously awesome testing skills. And so borrowed a little bit from him. I think I owe him a postcard then. Because he's got this postcard, where, or postcard license on like all of their stuff. 
where if you use one of their packages, he requests a postcard to be sent to their offices. Oh, that's cool. Have you have you seen that? Yeah, I've I've seen mentions of it on Twitter, but I haven't not enough to to go and look up what it what it's all about. Yeah, so on his packages, when you when you go to use it, it's like yeah, you owe us a postcard. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, pretty cool, cool idea. Yeah. So anyway, speaking of packages, uh, Mail Thief uh, was released from Titan, you know, not too long ago, where mm-hmm. it essentially will swap out the mail handler in uh, Swift Mailer and store all the messages that are sent as your application is running through so you can basically say, hey, mailer, give me the last message and see if it was sent to this person. So I had a need to use that in in some of my testing yesterday, actually. And I found out that MailThief actually encourages best practices according to Adam Wathen, which meaning, (laughs) meaning by that, no type hinting. And the reason I say that is because the way that I was handling my email was I had a email little DTO uh, that I was building up. So it was it was containing the subject, the to, the body, uh, all those details. And then I would just send that to a job called issue email. And that job was queued, so it would fire in the background and et cetera, et cetera, no big deal. In the handle method of that job, I was uh, type hinting the Laravel Illuminate mailer class and Laravel would just go ahead and do handle the dependency injection for that method when it would bring it back up from the queue to dispatch it. And so in my tests, I went and said, you know, mail thief, whatever. Well, when you try and do that, Laravel will complain because it's mail thief is trying to inject itself instead of the Laravel Illuminate mailer. So mm-hmm. I had to remove that type hint, which subsequently, since there's no type hint, Laravel can't do the dependency injection. So ended up having to just use the facade in the in the method, which is totally fine. I have no problem with that. Great. But no type in, right? And then the second thing is when you send when you call mail colon colon send, pass through the view that you're going to use, then you pass through the data, then you pass through a closure. And that closure accepts as an argument the message that you're actually going to be sending. So I had type hinted that as well so that my IDE would be able to show me the methods that were available for the message inside my closure. And that also cannot be done when you're using mm. MailThief because, it, again, MailThief uses a custom message. And so in the end, I came away with code that I'm sure, according to Adam Wathen's standards, would be much better. And so he's pushing me in, in the right direction, I suppose. If, if no type hinting is the way to go, which, to be honest with you, most of the time, the only reason I do a lot of that stuff is not because I'm trying to protect myself from like pushing something else in, but because my IDE is intelligent enough to know what methods are available if I do the type hinting. Yeah. You know, so it just becomes habit at some point sometimes to do some of that type hinting stuff that's not really necessary. Yeah, I know, I know what you're saying, but I mean, we've talked about it before. I, I use Vim for pretty much everything and um, the type hints are not much good to me. It, I mean, it does some reasonable, reasonably intelligent things using C tags and things like that. But for the most part, the only time that I'm using a type hint anywhere is with uh, route model binding. Other than that, I don't, I don't really bother. I, I put them in my doc box. Like I'll put the full class path to input parameters and return types into the doc box, just mm-hmm. so that yeah. you know anyone looking at it knows what they should be. But at the end of the day, you're responsible for putting the code in there, and you know what you're expecting. So as long as you in, you know, as long as your variables or your the variables that you're passing in are correct, then everything that happens inside those methods is is going to be just fine. So 
Yeah. And and your unit tests are going to show whether anything breaks or not anyway. So. Yep. Good point. Good point. So I would say for anybody that hasn't used Mail Thief, this is definitely this is not a bash on Mail Thief. This is definitely an endorsement. It's an amazing tool, and mm-hmm. this is the first time I've, I've been able to actually use it for testing. And man, it made what I was trying to accomplish so much easier. I was trying to test it five different ways, and then I was like, you know what? I'm just going to try Mail Thief. And with those two very small changes, it worked like a charm. So I was pretty uh, pretty excited about that. Yeah. I wonder how that's going to change going forward with the new mailable stuff coming in Laravel 5.3. I wondered myself, and I didn't know if it was going to cause MailThief to be able to, like if it was going to cause you know, a break there, like if it wasn't going to work. Yeah. I'm not sure. I, I don't know yet. If it is going to break, I'd be interested in helping to make it work for 5.3. But It'd be interesting because the new... The new uh, format for sending mail in in five point three, I think, should make it easier to test at least the individual pieces, mm-hmm. maybe. But I'm sure that, that there'd be some kind of testing infrastructure that comes along with it. And and if not, then I'm sure Adam has been working alongside Taylor in getting Mail Thief to a point where it's going to work in a very similar way, I guess, um, for testing that as well. You're still using the facade to do it, right? Yeah. And in the background, it's still injecting. It's doing the exact same thing. Yeah. So you're still doing mail send. Uh, you just uh, I think you do mail and then do like two and it's the email address of the person you're sending it to and then you just do send and then you send it you know, the mailable class. Hmm. So yeah, I will be interested to see how that works. But I think it, I, I don't think it would be too too hard to kind of rearrange it to work if it does cause some breakage. Maybe we'll have to get him on the show and ask him. Yeah, absolutely. Sounds good to me. Adam, if you're listening... You're next. <laughs> All right. Uh, so you wanted to talk a little bit about Majestic Monoliths. Do you want to introduce that for us? Yeah. So I had a I put a tweet out earlier today in preparation for recording this episode just to see if anyone had any questions for us or anything they wanted to hear us discuss. And a lot of that, I think, comes down to listeners who may be in, you know, single developers or freelancers or or they don't have that the other developer to ask questions too so i think it's good just for us to talk about it and give them another perspective one of the questions that i got from ryan callahan was just around using or working with monolithic applications in a world where lots of people are sort of tending towards microservices and and you and i spoke about this a bit before the show and i think we're pretty much on the same page in that using the monolith is is pretty much fine i tend to agree yeah it's uh you know, I think unless you have a very good use case for, for microservices, you're probably almost always going to be better served by going with a Majestic Monolith. And I mean, I say that with all sorts of like caveats, right? There are certainly people who use microservices and love them. Uh, you know, some of the reasons I think is like when you have some of these massive Majestic Monoliths running tests across everything can take an eternity Right, so breaking it up into these microservices allows you to have more targeted tests and to be able to deploy faster and basically worry about less code at a time. It's also it distributes your code base, so like one part of your application could go down and not necessarily take down your entire thing. Having said that, though, for most of the teams that I've worked on, it would be not maintainable to have you know to have all these different applications all over all over the place. And I will say too, the majority of the things that I'm working on here would would fit into that majestic monolith sort of sort of idea but it is necessary for us to have different kind of small apis sprinkled around in different in different um in different pieces where i basically want to contain the exposure to certain connections in our in our network to a single 
point. So I have one API that I've built that interacts with this, this legacy database system that we have. And any calls that need to be made to that happen there. Because when I migrate that server, which is in the future, I want to only have one place to change those connections to. <laughs> so that's not a necessarily a microservice. I suppose it could be, but I have found that it can be a huge pain when you have to, when you have to kind of synchronize all your changes. Yeah. So okay, I have a job over here that needs to make a call to this legacy API, and then. Once that legacy API is done, then I have this other service over here that actually does some file movement stuff. So I have three different pieces. And so I have to make my changes in each one, do pull requests in each one, and then let my, you know, let the guy who's doing the code review be like, okay, you, you need to merge these kind of at the same time and then let me know so I can deploy them in the correct order. Now, yeah. maybe that'd be solved if you had like, you know, auto deployment sort of stuff set up, but it can just cause a lot of headaches. If it's not necessary, I would say don't do it. Like don't do it because it's the cool thing, right? You need to have a really good business reason for why you'd be using that stuff. Yeah, and just going back to what you were saying about testing is that whilst you can split out your individual components and you can test each of the individual components, at some point you still have to figure out how you're going to test all of those things together and how they all fit together. So mm -hmm. a lot of the time it's, you know, it's going to be easier from a testing point of view to just leave it all in one place. And... A lot of a lot of Laravel stuff can find its uh, way back up the tree towards a lot of stuff that's come out of Ruby on Rails, and so a lot of my thought processes, and you you might be the same, and and, and a lot of people I know, you know, Adam and and a few others in the community do do sort of follow on what DHH says, and a lot of a lot of that kind of mentality is that you know just have lots of controllers just you know test all that kind of stuff put it all in one application so a lot of the soa and the, or the microservices architecture is is going to be pretty yagny you know you aren't going to need it mm. and and you really need to make that decision when you come across the point when you start feeling the pain points and i think given the scale of some of the applications that that are still you know one big application i think it's going to be quite a while before most people will get there i know in our in our situation, we have this transcode platform, which was originally built as as one code base where the front end and the actual transcode workers were all one application. And so we could scale that out so we'd have multiple workers, but that also meant deploying on you know, 10, 15, 20 servers, the front end as well, which was never accessed. So that's something that we're looking at splitting out in a future version of that platform is to have the workers themselves to be self-contained and then the front end will be part of another application. So, and that way we can just spin them up a lot quicker and, and they'll have a much smaller footprint. So I don't really have too much experience obviously with microservices and, and things like that. Whether or not that's because I'm not working at the right scale or I just, I don't see the value in it. I'm not sure. I think it's probably a little bit of both really. I'm, I'm pretty happy of, you know, building applications in a way that I mean, you can still separate things out reasonably well in you know in your monolith. So yeah, uh, a, a good person to have on to talk about this, or if you do have any questions on these sorts of things and you want you want more info, 
Uh, the person to talk to would be Samantha Geitz. Oh, yeah. She works for Titan Co. Yeah. She's an awesome, amazing developer, and she actually gave a talk at Laracon 2015 about microservices. She's used them extensively and knows all about that stuff. So if you guys have any questions, she's the one to ask. So, yeah. Cool. All right. We got anything else today? Um, No, I think... No. I'm good. <laughs> all right. All right, man. Well, we forgot to say it last time, so we'll say it this time. Thanks for listening. If you guys like the show, feel free to rate it in iTunes. Five-star reviews are always welcome. We are on Twitter at NorthSouthAudio, and our website is NorthMeetsSouth.audio, where you can find the show notes for this episode. Michael, it's always a pleasure talking to you. And same to you, mate. We'll talk to you next time. Yeah. All right, buddy. Bye.